All right, kids, you can head out kindergarten through fifth grade out the side door with Miss Megan. Uh, it was a great week. It was awesome to see so many people serving and being part of that ministry. Uh, not only the fun that was had, but more importantly, the message that was proclaimed both to kids in this church and, and in this community. But uh, while they file out, let's, the rest of us, open up our Bibles, and we're going to go to Psalm 138. If you don't have a Bible, we'd encourage you to take a blue pew Bible. And you can find Psalm 138 on page 521. Did you know that there is scientific evidence to the power in a name? In 2006, there was a study completed by the Institute for the Study of Child Development trying to determine the impact of hearing or seeing your name. And they did so by running tests in the uh, medial prefrontal cortex part of the brain. I know most of you already knew that, all right? I already knew what that part of the brain did. But if you didn't happen to know that, let me share. Um, this is the part of the brain that is responsible for a lot of the important processes that include emotions and perspective taking, many of which run in the background, meaning they aren't processes you actively control, but your brain reacts to them in the predictable patterns that help form your unique personality and personhood. Uh, what I got from that is this is the part of your brain that makes us all different, right? Like why do we have such widely different personalities when we have so much in common in the human race? Uh, scientifically, it gets pointed to this part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, and in this study, they used the brain scanner, and they tested various subjects um, to different words and names at random patterns, and they were told to minimize their physical reactions to the test, um, even when they'd hear their own name. They just try to stay kind of as calm as possible while they do the scans of the brain. And they found that there is unique brain activation when a person hears their own name. Your brain does something when it hears or sees your name that it doesn't do when it hears any other word that you can understand. Similar to the patterns that we also exhibit when we see our image in the mirror. When you look in the mirror or you see a picture of yourself, some of that same brain activity happens than when you hear your name. Here's the most interesting part of the study that I found. Um, that they ran brain scans also on individuals who were in a, um, a vegetative state meaning they were in a condition where there was no awareness of their self or their environment. People who were unable to move, unable to speak, identify others, even open their eyes. And yet, when their name was spoken, their brain demonstrated the same activation patterns, even if just for a moment. And so one of the takeaways of this study is why it is so important to know and to remember somebody's name. Um, when you say someone's name to them, it activates something primal in them, something they don't even control that just kind of happens in the background. And it's also why, and we can all attest to this, even if it's just a little bit, it kind of hurts when someone doesn't remember your name, especially someone you might hold in esteem or think highly of. When they don't remember your name or say, call you the wrong name, mispronounce your name, it kind of hurts a little bit. It's also why I get frustrated being in a profession where I'm constantly meeting new people and learning new people's names when I can't remember someone's name. It kills me. Or when I mispronounce someone's name and have to be 
corrected. It hurts me a little bit because I know it kind of hurts them a little bit. It's also why for those who are teachers um, on summer break and you're going to go back to school in September and you're going to have a whole new group of students and why teachers do and will work hard in those opening days and those opening weeks to learn and to remember their students' names because of even what that does to encourage, stimulate, and support their own development when you address someone by name. Why is that the case? Why is there something primal in us when we hear our name? Why do we care about being known by our names? The, the, the rest of the creative order does not care about their name, right? Lions don't have names for one another. Um, the pets we have react to their name because we've trained them to care about their name. All right, I love your dogs. Your dog would not care if it didn't have a name. All right, you gave your dog a name, and in their natural state, they would not be bothered by not having a name. Don't fight me on that. All right, I know that's a mess with dangerous territory. I won't even look you in the eye. Um, but the fact that there is a primal, creative, unique design in us that reacts to the power of a name, I think the Bible tells us that that is because we are not our own but we belong to God. And so now we continue with our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms. And this morning we arrive at Psalm 138, and it is a psalm of thanksgiving. And if we've already had a couple psalms of praise in our series um, this summer. And if a psalm of praise is primarily worship of God for who he is and his character and his attributes, a psalm of thanksgiving is primarily gratitude towards God for who he is and what he has done. All right? Praise and thanksgiving. They are cousins, but they are distinct from one another. And in Psalm 138, we are going to see some biblical evidence to the power of a name and how that connects with the rest of the Bible. So we're going to read it all up front. Psalm 138, it's eight verses. You can follow along with me or on the screen. I give, thanks to you, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. All right, Psalm 138. The, the heartbeat of this psalm is found in verse 2. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And all the things we could rattle off right now as to why you are thankful to God. If we just kind of took the mic and passed it around and say, what are you grateful to the Lord for? We will all have different lists. But at the top of our list, what I yearn for in my own life and in the life of Grace Church, um, the top of the list is that we are thankful that the Lord esteems his name above all names. 
This is what Psalm 138 declares. So I want to ask us, why does that matter? Why does it matter that God cares more about his name than anything else? And that's a good thing. Why should we desire that God exalt his name above everything else? Here we go, Psalm 138. I got five reasons. We're going to go fast this morning. Number one, his name shall crown. His name shall crown. There is a kingly theme through Psalm 138. And the reason why is because many commentators believe Psalm 138 was written in response to God's declaration to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of those hot spots in the Old Testament that we would all do well to be familiar with. If you were following Christ, you would do well to study and be familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 7. At Grace, as Christy said in her announcement, we believe uh, deeply in the knowledge of his word and the study of his word in all things, and that his entire word is inspired. But there are certain hot spots throughout the story that's going to kind of carry the narrative forward throughout the Bible, and 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a hot spot, because that chapter is where God makes his promise or his covenant to David, just as he had made to his forefathers before him, men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Moses. And now he comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, who is the king of God's choosing over God's chosen people. David is the king of God's choosing over God's chosen people. And in that chapter, God promises to raise up David's offspring to establish a kingdom forever. And part of that promise is that an offspring of David would fulfill David's dream to build a house for God's name. And this was good news, and this would be fulfilled in his son, King Solomon. But that's not all what happens in that promise. Included in that covenant was the promise that God would establish a kingdom that would never end. A kingdom that would last forever. And in the text, if you read 2 Samuel 7, David's response, he had to sit down. Right? You ever been there? You got that kind of news, and you receive it, and it's so incredible, your knees get weak, you can't even stand. Now, we have to admit, that's true on both sides of the emotional spectrum. You maybe also received very bad news, very shocking news. But whether it's very bad news or very good news, you get this reaction, again, primal instinct to go, I can't stand anymore. I need a chair. I need to sit on the ground. I cannot be trusted on my two feet any longer. That's what David said when he heard this promise. And he did not know exactly how it would happen. How could he? But he trusted and he knew God enough that God is God. And God does not lie. And what God says, God will do. So David had to sit down. And Psalm 38 goes on. 138 goes on to verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That, that phrase, steadfast love, can also be translated covenant love, your promised love, your covenant love. And David wasn't just grateful because this was going to be his family. Man, I'm the forefather of a kingdom that will never end, right? David's not being prideful here when he's boasting in Psalm 138. He is being grateful. He is grateful because this forever kingdom is one that will make much of God. 
he, he wouldn't be able to articulate it, but he somehow knows that a forever kingdom will be a kingdom that all other kingdoms will bow down to one day. Which he says in verse 4, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. This promised king of the future will be the king of kings, and his name shall crown. And again, that is good news for us. I want us to understand clearly that God is first and foremost about God. And he is more about his own name than he is about our name. And the reason why you might hear that, you might have an initial like, that sounds a little off, that sounds a little strange. Um, that's because when we think about it through our lens, that's not true for any of us. That's not true for anybody else. No one else can say, it is best for me to care and esteem myself more than my wife. That it is best for me to care more about my name than my children or this church. That would be bad news for me. That would be bad news for you. But for God, it is good news. And the reason is simple. If you can remember one thing from this morning's sermon, remember this. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. And I can tell you with all confidence and assurance that there is no more liberating truth to live by than the one that daily acknowledge, God is God, and I am not. All right, put that on a post-it note and put it on your mirror in the morning. Put it on a tattoo, okay, never mind. All right, you just do whatever you want, but you remember that phrase. Number one, his name shall crown. Number two, his name shall consume. Look at the back half of verse one, second line of verse one. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Um, there is not a consensus amongst commentators what David means by that phrase, before the gods, I sing your praise. So let me give you kind of the three kind of uh, top options that commentators throughout church history has kind of discerned this to be. Number one, that it could be angels. This was the view of both Luther and Calvin in the Reformation that uh, before kind of heavenly beings, before angels, I'm going to sing your praise. Number two, it could be false gods of the world. Israel was a nation surrounded by nations made up of peoples who served false gods. So David could be saying, we are a single nation here in the world surrounded by other nations that serve other gods. And I'm going to praise you, the one true God, above all the false gods that surround us. The third take, and the one that I think best lines up with the rest of Psalm 138, and with the context of 2 Samuel chapter 7, is that David is referring to earthly kings. These powerful men who view themselves as gods. And therefore, the people that they lead view them almost as godlike because they're kings. But ultimately, whatever of those kind of three takes you think best lines up, what we need to see, what David wants us to see, is that he is resolute and committed his whole self to thanksgiving. He is actively choosing to be consumed by the name of God with his whole heart as a shield against idolatry and self-worship. That when I am fully grateful towards God for who he is, that is a shield, that is a defense against self-worship. And praise of God is the best defense against a pride of self. 
Praise of God is your best defense against the pride of self. But David is an earthly king himself, and we know a pretty good one, a pretty powerful king, a pretty successful king, who knows that his heart is prone to wander. His heart is prone to worship and idolize himself. It's his natural bent to look upon the work he has done, to look upon the people that praise him and go, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty gifted. I don't lose many battles. My name is pretty powerful. Look, would you look at that? People treat me like a god. Feels pretty good. And so he knows this is his bent. So he needs this shield. And I would say there is a direct correlation to those who gain power in this world and those who stop worshiping God. And it's unfortunate and we need to be aware of it. That even in your giftings and your strengths, God might raise your power, raise your stock, raise your influence in this world. And all too often, the people at the top of the list, of whatever list we think exists out there, are the ones who are least prone to give thanks to God. Because they are kind of like God. And people kind of treat them like God. But let's also remember that pride is not just defined by thinking highly of ourselves. It can also be defined by thinking so poorly of ourselves. Because if we say on the inverse of that, man, I'm just the worst. I can't do anything right. Everything I've tried has failed. Nobody respects me. Nobody thinks highly of me. In fact, I don't deserve any love or acceptance. Let's be clear, that's not humility. That's still pride. But you're coming in through the back window instead of the front door, you know what I mean? But either way, you're going to end up in the same house. Consumed with ourselves, whether you think too highly or too lowly of self. And when that happens, when we're operating and living out of that mindset, we cannot give thanks to God with our whole heart. Maybe we can give him half our heart. We can give him a quarter of our heart because our whole heart is focused on other things, namely ourselves. But when our whole heart is consumed with God, we don't need to muster up a defense against false gods or the pride of self and the things of this world because our gratitude is our defense. The more you worship God, the more you will defend against pride. Uh, so, you know, a pastor that I often refer to and listen to often is Alistair Begg. And I always say it's more than because he has a Scottish accent, but a Scottish accent doesn't hurt in listening to him. And he is now a pastor in Cleveland. He went from Scotland to Cleveland. And uh, he went in the early 1990s. And I recall him hearing him talking about that when he first got to Cleveland, he was just ragging on the sport of baseball. He just didn't get it. He would go to an Indians game, now Guardians, um, and he says every other inning, on the big screen, this janky music would come on, and this big message would come across saying, make some noise. Come on, get louder. Let me hear you. And he would just sit there and be like, why would you want to go to a game where you need to be told with corny music to get loud. Like the home team is begging you, please cheer, just cheer, just make some noise. And he's like, have you ever been to a professional soccer game in the UK? He's like, there's no message on the jumbo screen saying, make some noise. 
He, he says, you know why? Because everyone is already making some noise. They're into the game the whole time, going wild. And in the same way, a heart that is consumed with God will praise him. And that praise is located at the core in gratitude and thanksgiving for his name. That the more we dwell on his name, the more we dwell on who he is and what he has done, the, the less it will be about our current circumstance that will kind of dictate the level of our praise, but we will be consumed with our whole hearts. And it reminds us, and I've said this before, that when gratitude moves out of the house of our soul, greed moves in. When gratitude checks out, greed comes in. Because the opposite of gratitude is greed. You're always needing more. You're always searching for more. And a life that is defined by a search for meaning, a search for praise, a search for contentment, a search that is outside of God is one where you will always be looking and never finding. The foundation of greed is the absence of gratitude. Number two, his name shall consume. Let's keep going to number three. Why do we care and desire that God is most about his name above all things? Number three, his name shall comfort. Look at verse six, six and seven. For, the low, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. This high view of God that we talk about at Grace Church is not removed from or said in spite of real struggle we experience in this life. Any view of God that cannot be directly related to our lives that we lead day in and day out is not worth keeping. I lament how many people get this vague exposure to God, a vague exposure to him where they learn about him in a way that's kind of divorced from the rest of our lives. It's kind of kept in a box, and it's limited to just church on Sunday, or limited to like private school as a kid. And then you get older, maybe limited to Christmas and, and Easter holidays, but we keep it in a box, and it's sealed off from our work, it's sealed off from our marriages, our family, our friendships, our hobbies, the way we talk the things we desire, the things we hope for, the things we struggle with. It's just a boring, vague view of God for the sake maybe of good karma, or my family did it. And I lament that. And it's no wonder that so many people grow up after being exposed to a vague view of God and then walk away. Because, like, God is a terrible hobby. Like, church is a, not a great hobby. You can find more interesting things to do if you're just looking for, like, interesting things. If he's not consuming us, then of course we'll walk away from it. But here we see the Lord, though he is high, though he is high, he's the name above all names, he chooses to regard the lowly. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, you might not be as familiar with Psalm 138, but I imagine most of you are more familiar with Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And Psalm 23 climaxes on this very point in verse 4. Even though I walk 
through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Faith in a name that is big enough to consume you with praise is also big enough to comfort you in affliction. Those are two streams that flow from the same river. Uh, If you think about um, uh, when you see a young child want the attention of their parents, when does that happen most? When does a a young child want their mom or dad most? It's usually on the polar opposite ends of the emotional range. Either when they're really happy and excited or they're really sad. Right? When one of our kids does something they were thrilled by, right? Caden hits a long jump shot. Uh, Brinley finally does a somersault after practicing all summer. Uh, what they want, they immediately want mom or dad to share their joy. Because they're so excited. And they just want their attention. They want to just, just kind of share that moment with us. And when one of our kids is really upset, they tripped on the pavement for the 13th time this summer. All right? A sibling said something mean to them. Or they're sad and they have to say goodbye. Caden's not here, but like, you know, he's been to Wisconsin, he's been to New Hampshire. Caden, if you know him, he's got so much passion and he hates saying goodbye to people. And he, and and where he'll just bury his head in my chest because he's embarrassed, he doesn't want to see them cry, but his his eyes always well up with tears and he has to say goodbye. Like someone he met yesterday, all right? And he's got to say goodbye and he's just like, he's just like, oh man, feeling that. That that they want me when when they're really happy and they want to share praise, or they're really sad and they need to be comforted. Because both those reactions and the desire that draws them to me come from, are two streams from the same river, joy and sorrow. And so it is with our Lord that the same name that will consume our heart with praise will also comfort our whole heart in suffering. Number three, his name shall comfort. Number four, two left. His name shall confirm. This brings us to verse 8. Verse 8 of Psalm 138 will reverberate throughout the rest of Scripture. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Underline verse 8. Again, in operating under the assumption that David is writing this in response to God's promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is believing by faith that God's promise will be fulfilled, and it is a promise without end. This promise in Psalm 138 is the prequel to the New Testament promise in Philippians 1 verse 6. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church, Quote, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His name shall confirm. And we receive that promise by faith. Even we don't see it, even we don't feel it, we choose to believe it. For the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his version of that same promise, he knew something that King David didn't know. That God's promise to David of a never-ending kingdom would find its fulfillment in his offspring down the line a thousand years. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is primal power in a name. In the Gospels, 
Matthew and Luke share the birth accounts of Jesus, the Christmas story, if you will. I want to read you a couple passages from those Gospels, and I want you to listen to them with Psalm 138 in mind. So in Luke chapter 1, there's an angel that came upon Mary to tell her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she would bear a child. Here's what the angel said. Verse 30 of Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You go then to Matthew chapter 1. There an angel separately comes upon Joseph. Joseph had heard about Mary's interaction with an angel. Joseph did not believe Mary. Joseph resolved to divorce Mary when he found out she was pregnant. Listen to what this angel said to Joseph in light of Psalm 138, verse 18. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is power in a name. And there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. For not only is he Lord, a kingdom, a king over a kingdom that will have no end, as the angel told Mary, but he is also Savior, for through his life, death, and resurrection, he will save his people from their sins, as the angel told Joseph. And so this is where we benefit from God being for his own name and that theme being pulled all throughout the scripture storyline. And we see the unity of this message of scripture written over thousands of years by dozens of people around this idea of a name. And we see the fulfillment of the name of God from Psalm 138 to Matthew 1 to Luke 1. And now I want to show you in John 1, where John doesn't give a kind of a Christmas account of his birth, but John introduces Jesus in this way in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, look, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus was born of God. Jesus was named by God. And through faith in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, you too will be adopted and born of God. And when this happens, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, in the very end of the Bible, you know what it says? Your name will be written in the book of life. Lastly, number five, we finish with his name shall come. His name shall come. The final line of verse 8 is a prayer. It's a request from David to the Lord. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Grace Church, our confidence in the saving work of God does not replace our need for prayer. It fuels our practice of prayer. And David is saying, Lord, don't you forget it. Don't you forget it. 
While we wait for you to come to complete your work, we yearn for it, we want it, we want to see it, we want you to come. We yearn to see the kings of the earth bow down. We yearn to see every knee bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord. This fuels our prayer. And it fuels our mission. Because there will be a day when this will finish. There will be a day when mission will no longer matter. And all that will exist is worship. But until then, church, we commit ourselves to this. We commit ourselves as a church, as an embassy of heaven, to declare the name of Jesus. Last passage, and then we'll pray. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 15, Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Praise God for his name. Praise God for those who believe in his name. That someone shared the name of Jesus with you. And now we join the mission to declare that same name of Jesus while there is still time. Grace Church, plead with me that God would not forsake his word. Plead with me that the fire which has been kindled in your heart and in this church would spread until all of North Jersey shall be ablaze in the revival of grace for his name. Scientific studies on the brain are now just beginning to catch up with what the Bible has been saying all along. I'm grateful for scientific evidence in so much that it confirms what the biblical evidence has been saying for thousands of years. That there is a primal, creative design within us that reacts to the power of a name. And that's because we are not our own, but we belong to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that your word reveals your name. And we are thankful, Lord, that someone, for all those who profess Jesus in this room this morning and those watching online, that someone was bold enough, courageous enough to declare the name of Jesus to us and that your spirit opened up our hearts to believe in that name. So, Father, now let this fuel our prayers. Let this fuel our mission that you have now called us to declare that same name to those you have placed us in and around, in the context that you've called us, Lord. Allow us to be unified in our commitment to declare your name. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage. Allow us to love this world enough to declare the name of Jesus into it. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song and prepare for the Lord's Supper?